0: And I'm a cartoonist, scholar, and educator.
1: And my name is E. Jackson, and I'm a cartoonist, scholar.
0: On Drawing a Dialogue, we put comics to historical and educational contexts.
1: Today we wanted to talk about the idea of the canon. Um, so we wanted to talk about the history of like what the canon is and how it's defined, and also why it's so difficult to create a canon for comics and if we really need one or not.
0: We're gonna do this a little bit differently. I think we're gonna go do a lot more back and forth. We're gonna do a lot more dialogue. It'll be a fun episode. So why don't we just start out with a definition of what the canon is?
1: Yeah, that sounds good. What What do you have for definition? I'm curious.
0: I have a few different definitions. So I just want to introduce this... Hubert Loker article called The Idea of Canon and Canon Formation in Art History. Um, I'm probably gonna be referencing it like a lot. So his definition is today, so this is the current definition, uh, today a canon is usually understood as a group of works, objects, or more often texts recognized within a defined social group as being exemplary and thus embodying a set of binding provisions. Right. So he's talking about art history but um, sort of more of a general idea of what a canon is. Right,
1: and canon is a word that's used in, um, like, across disciplines, but I think the context that we're going to be talking about mostly is going to be, like, art historical.
0: Yeah, and he's got another definition here. Um, A canon in general is a system of reference produced in a certain cultural context. So just like we were talking about, it's all contextual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have another definition. Um, This is just from the National Gallery in London. Um, This is just from their website, their glossary of terms. Um, Canon of art history. They have a quote here, the conventional timeline of artists who are sometimes considered quote-unquote old masters... Mm -hmm or great artists, today's art history attempts to question these rules of greatness, considering issues of gender, race, class, and geography, among others. Right. So they're sort of bringing in, in their definition, they're sort of bringing in um, a critical eye to the idea of canon.
1: Right, yeah. So a lot of the definitions, I guess in like contemporary theory, talk about the limitations of canon. Um, I like this definition I have from... Differencing the Canon, Feminism in the Writing of Arts Histories by Griselda Pollock. She talks about um, the term canon is derived from the Greek canon, which means ruler standard, evoking both social regulation and military organization. Um, Originally, the canon had religious overtones, being the officially accepted list of writings that form the scriptures. And then she goes on to say, canons may be understood, therefore as the retroactively legitimizing backbone of a culture and political identity, a consolidated narrative of origin, conferring authority on the text selected to naturalize this function. Um so basically canonicity refers to uh, quality and the status of the work. Um because if something's in what we consider the canon, um there's sort of a value judgment there. Like it has to be considered like a quality yeah. work to be in it. And also that gives it status.
0: Yeah, there's definitely it definitely um Holds a hierarchy. It creates a hierarchy of the works in which are defining a culture, mm-hmm. and then the works that are therefore on the periphery are therefore uh, mimicking those canonized works. Yeah, or like they are reflections of it, or um, derivative.
1: Yeah, and these are like const. These definitions are constantly being challenged and are changing. Um, I feel like especially in art history. I like, this is still uh, Pollock points out that Rembrandt, for instance, was reclaimed in the 19th century as a great religious and spiritual artist instead of being dismissed, as he hadn't been in the 18th, as a sloppy painter of low subjects, while Halls, Friends Halls, long avoided as a minor Flemish genre painter of no great skill or distinction, became an inspiration to Manet and his generation of modernists in search of new techniques of painting life. Um, So there's sort of like a reevaluation that happens over time.
0: Yeah, and that's sort of what um what the field of history is, right? Mm-hmm. It's sort of searching and redefining things that have existed. So that's interesting. Do you want to talk about the history of canon now? Oh yes. I have a really fun thing for that. Yeah. Um, so I have sort of a long quote. We're going back to Loker again. And so sort of the history of the word canon. Mm-hmm. So let's quote him, uh, as a metaphor stemming probably from architecture, it is a basic notion in one that the very earliest Western, he, he uses these word Westerns again, Western theories of art. Canon, which is Greek or Latin for measuring rod or standard, as he just mentioned, was the title of the Lost Theoretical Trees by the Greek sculptor Polykleitos. In his natural history, uh, this is natural history. The book Pliny the Elder r- relates that other artists called one of the sculptures the Doryphorus made by Polyclitus "Canon" because it was considered to be a perfect proportioned image of a man. <laughs> The term is also used to refer to a model in the sense of a guideline, a set of rules, just like E was talking about, or a schedule or list of dates referring to reference points. It is important to note that the notion was very early on connected to law, and even more significantly, to religion, which we're probably going to get into a little bit more, but I like the idea that canon means measuring rod or standard and also a set of rules and then it was part of law and religion so the idea of a rules and a hierarchy and things that you need to follow is what canon originates as
1: yeah that's like really interesting
0: so uh whereas in early christianity the term was only used in application to religious law so canonical law okay from the fourth century onwards the term was also used in reference to the definitive and authoritative nature of the body of sacred scripture, a use of the term that classical antiquity did not know, neither in application to religious or secular literary texts. The word canonization was also used to designate the act by the royal Christian church declared a person to be a saint or the imposition of canonical law and the whole church of the universal public veneration of an individual.
1: Oh, right. So it was related to, um, like, sainthood was part of it. I remember that.
0: Yeah. I didn't grow up Catholic. Did you grow up Catholic?
1: In the very loosest sense of the word?
0: Yeah. I mean, I grew up Protestant. Like, I don't know anything about canonizations or saints or any of that. I was
1: baptized Catholic, but I was Um, never confirmed.
0: So I'm just wondering if you are familiar with the word canonization within, like, a Christian context.
1: From a little bit of research when do you know like when about the sort of shift from the like religious law religious uh definition to like a broader like definition came about
0: it actually didn't start religious religious picked it up so it was later it was later picked up by religion be- as like a set of rules and it, I mean if you think about it so like philosophy early philosophy was all religious writing yeah um so the idea of art and religion being one and the same is not weird
1: yeah that yeah that's a common thread going pretty much back to the origin of art <laughs>
0: Yeah. So it's not, it's not like, so they did start at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. So the question is where it's less, when did Christianity take it? It's more, when did that split occur?
1: Right. Okay. Do you have the answer to that?
0: It it happens a lot later. Yeah. Right. It's interesting because it is going to come up. In sort of the critiques of canon, right? But it's sort of the history of art. Yeah. Right? Is when canonization and when art history started to break off of its religious ties. Yeah.
1: Well, I can talk about that a little bit.
0: Yeah, please do.
1: So this is um, what I'm talking about now comes from um, Nanette Salomon's uh, The Art Historical Canon Sins of Omission. And she here is speaking, well, I'll just jump into it of oh, this is from nineteen ninety one, by the way. The current official selection of great works of art owes much of its present composition to the ubiquitous standard college text by H. W. Jansen, The History of Art, first written in nineteen sixty two. Jansen did not write the original list, which is fundamentally derived from Giorgio Vasari's Le Vite de Piu. Eccellenti architecti, Pittori e Sculptori Italiani, first published in 1550 and credited as the first modern, quote-unquote, exposition of the history of Western European art written during the High Renaissance. So during the High Renaissance, when Florentine, like Florence, was considered sort of like the height of the art-making world. This is during the time of like Mm -hmm. Michelangelo and Raphael. And Mm -hmm. Vasari, in writing this book... um, as she said, this is a direct quote, um, Vasari's desire to not only construct that history, but to place Florence at its center, motivated both the form and content of his book. So this is the first instance, essentially, where um, we start and I've talked about this in some of our other episodes. I talked about this briefly when I talked about like the low culture, mm-hmm. like the origins of like where that divide comes from. Vasari asserts that great art is the expression of individual genius and can be explicated only through biography. The stress on individual biographies announced in the book's title encapsulates those individuals and presents them as discrete from their social and political environments. So what he's doing is tying the art to the individual artists and like their personal unique biographies instead of the... Ah quote instead of letting us evaluate them in the quote as a real component in a process of social exchange that involves both production and consumption this is also how vasari creates the structure he sort of is like credited as creating the art critic art historian figure because Uh his structure this emphasis on biography requires someone who can authoritatively proclaim what has value
0: Yeah, I I mean, if you don't mind me jumping ahead, because I have. Yeah, no problem. I can continue this idea. But it is like, because we are going to start to talk about the canonization or what is like comics and their relationship to the canon. Yeah. One of the issues that Art Historians talks about is that art history is so obsessed with individual artists Mm -hmm. and that comics are so collaborative. There's like writers and, and drawing and pencilers and inkers. So like since the beginning of comics, at least in America or quote unquote Western, there wasn't like. A single artist that they could attribute this genius to
1: Yeah, it is And this is actually So um, what Nanette Solomon is talking about In Sins of Omission Is how canon was constructed in such a way As to like intentionally omit Anyone who wasn't a white man Basically and she says the in, like specifically the individual who vasari describes as an artist is socially a free agent and therefore clearly gendered class and raced more specifically he is a white upper class male Only such an individual is empowered by his social position successfully to stake a claim to the personal freedom and creative calling that Vasari's construct requires. Because, again, this is the idea of the, like, individual mystified genius. And this is in the Renaissance, the way we created the, like, or the way that they created the idea of, like, fine art so they could place higher value on, like, fine art categories was by, like, making it an act of individual genius, basically, that was, like, divorced from... A, like a societal like need
0: yeah and you're right in the, in attributing that to that the only people who are allowed to be like individuals <laughs> and, have, and have freedom are were white men
1: and this is like a good example of how history like rewrites itself because um and this is from solomon again before the 20th century there is barely a history of art that completely omits women and vasari himself included some in Levite women used to be more accounted for in art, essentially. And in this context, Levite may be seen as part of the apparatus that abrogated women's direct and unproblematic participation in cultural life. So, like, not only did Vasari create this idea of the biography, he, um, quote-unquote, strategically enhanced the marginalization of people who did not fit the mold that he wanted to promote to, like, make Florence this, like, unique cultural artifact, essentially. Mm. And that sort of has, like, continued into today
0: yeah I mean I have another favorite I can continue the art history conversation yeah our favorite that we like to talk about is modernism right (laughs) yes so this is actually from the book the end of the history of art 1984 um, it's by Hans Beltig. It's tra- the one that I read was translated by Christopher S. Wood. So I read this book, and I actually, it is important. It's funny how like we're trying to contextualize stuff, mm-hmm. but every context has its own context. So I wanted to mention that this book was published in Munich. It was originally in German, mm-hmm. but in 1983, 1984, when he was writing it. Uh, Germany was still divided between East and West Germany. Right, U- German unification was until 1989. Like the collapse of communism hasn't happened yet. Um, Eastern Europe is like still um part of Iron Curtain stuff. Yeah. So I just wanted to mention, this is when and what the artist is talking about. So when he's talking about the end of art history, um, I do want you to keep this in mind. Right. But this section, he's he's referring to modernism. What are the dates of modernism? Can you just throw that out for me?
1: According to Wikipedia, roughly the 1860s to the
0: 1970s. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, So he's referring to modernism. He's writing in 1983 to remember that. Art history's difficulties with modern art date back to the early 19th century Mm -hmm. when art lost its traditional public functions, like what we were just talking about, artistic functions, uh, uh, communication functions. Art compensated for this loss with a reflection on its own aims and means in the artistic realm. It justified its survival by insisting on absolute autonomy. Art history emerged at this time as a new branch of humanist scholarship and appeared to follow the same path, isolating the artistic realm as its object of study. But this impression is misleading for in fact art history undertook to canonize the very tradition which the living art of the time was trying to decanonize right So modernism was trying to get away from its conce- its like Renaissance roots it was trying to find a new reason to exist. Right, art right. was at this time. Art history's intentions seemed to resemble those of art. In fact, they were applied to art historical instead of co- right. contemporary art. They were going back, right? They're going back to um, apply to historical art. Art history strove to restore the values of a lost tradition, while living art either escaped the inherited canon by means of deliberate modernism, or else made this canon the very object of its reflection, of its comments, doubts, and Desperate Affirmations. The two projects shared only in the faith of the genius of the artist, right? So art history is separating itself, during modernization, art history is separating itself from actual current living art, right? Yeah. Current artists. Because art history is interested in the canon, current artists are interested in decanonization, but the two things... What they have in common and their faith is in is the genius of the artist. Right. They parted ways when art history first explored the evolution of national schools and sought universal principles of artistic creation. Clearly, such contrary aims would not lend themselves to an early synthesis. So he's talking about his theory in the end of art history. Right. When basically art history started to... stop talking about current art.
1: So, like, no longer doing their job documenting, basically.
0: Yes. Um. Another thing that I think is actually interesting is that we're going back to Loker again. I keep mentioning him mm. a lot. You'll find him in the show notes. Uh, Loker actually argues that the word canon has not been overtly talked about in a critical sense t- until, like, very recently. Mm. And that canon has not been understood as a critical concept, really. Okay. Still. <laughs> So I think it is interesting, right? Artists are trying to decanonize, but in order to decanonize, do you still have to believe in the canon? And is an idea. That
1: is really interesting, actually. Um, so I was reading a lot of feminist uh, sort of analysis and critique of the canon. And cool. a thing that came up in uh, the Griselda Pollock book that I quoted from before, she sort of goes over different positions that feminists have taken. Um, to try to sort of reclaim the canon. But a thing she kind of comes back to is that the efforts that have been made in some cases don't actually challenge the tradition so much as like find ways to slot women into the tradition.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Which is
1: totally just upholding it. Um, She's talking specifically in this quote, she's talking about... um, The immediate task, quote-unquote, after 1970 was to attempt to fix the gaps in canon regarding the admission of women— But traditional remains the tradition with women in their own separated compartments or added as politically correct supplements. The the real history of art remains fundamentally unaffected because its mythological and psychic center is fundamentally or exclusively to do not with art or its histories, but with the Western masculine subject. So that's like a really interesting, like that ties into what you're talking about in like an interesting way of like attempts at challenging the canon often like uphold it by accident because like we don't talk about like it as an actual construct so much as like a thing that we just have to add to or expand
0: yeah i I think i think a lot of people are guilty of that yeah if if we're sort of moving into the critical do you want to move into our critical section sure so i have another article um called interventions Decentering modernism art history and avant-garde from the periphery Uh, It was written by Partha Mitter in 2008. So in this article, he actually begins by critiquing the end of the history of art, which is what I was just talking about. That's from 1983. Mm -hmm. This person's writing in 2008. With the collapse of earlier certainties, the last two decades have witnessed serious soul searching among art history, art historians, about the future of the discipline. So now Mitter is going to be critiquing Belting. Mm -hmm. There is, he points out, a progressive disjunction between the awareness of the enormous diversity of art forms and practices, and the narrow focus of canonical art histories. However, Belting's fear that the canon looks increasingly vulnerable may be somewhat premature. And I totally agree with this. This is 2008. Mm -hmm. We still really, really hold on to the canon in art history, right?
1: Yeah. To go kind of back in time, I guess, a little bit. So the canon is obviously very European-derived, historically.
0: I mean, the word, the word Pliny, it's right from the Greeks. Yeah,
1: so So it's based in sort of like European standards of art and practice. Um, So I have a paper titled Museums in the Colonial Horizon of Modernity. Uh, That is...
0: Perfect, modernity. Yeah,
1: uh, by Walter Magnolio, which is sort of, he's spending some time with a piece called uh, Mining the Museum by Fred Wilson, Um, But he talks a bit about sort of the history of colonialization with learning institutions, which I found interesting. Oh,
0: cool. So Get that education in there. Yeah.
1: So he writes, at the same time that Europe accumulated money through the extraction of gold and silver in the 16th century and through the exploitation of the Caribbean plantations in the massive slave trade in the 17th century, Europe also accumulated meaning. Museums and universities were and continue to be crucial institutions for the accumulation of meaning and the reproductions of the coloniality of knowledge and of beings. So basically, he's arguing or pointing out that in um, the 16th century, institutions of learning referring to um, museums and early universities. Um, and I do want to make a note, too, that this is also the same time period that Vasari, who we talked about before, founded the first Academy of Arts, the... Uh,
0: yeah, I was going to say 16th century is when that was starting, just like education was starting. Yeah, yeah the Academy
1: Academia del uh, Disegno in Florence, um, which was fostered by the joint authority of Michelangelo and the state of Florence through a uh, good old friend Cosimo de' Medici. So this is all within the <laughs> Our same time period. Art history, a lot of Medicis. So he says in the 16th century, these institutions of learning are caught up in changes of society, Um, the reorganization of uh, Western Europe. And again, that word Western um, from Italy to the Iberian Peninsula and from France and Germany to Britain and Holland. um, So these are the places where the idea of Europe as a Western civilization were invented. Um, And he says museums emerged during this time period And thus followed colonial logic Developing quote two directions in the accumulation of meaning One type of museum documented and consolidated The genealogy of European history uh, Like exemplified by art museums The second type was the ethnographic and natural museum Which documented other cultures including their art So from the jump there was one type of museum That did art Quote unquote," That was European okay. art And then the other type of museum Which did every other culture in existence But that's where their art went It wasn't included with the European uh. art and also in the 16th century, European style universities were established in um, Salamanca, Coimbra, Santo Domingo, Mexico, Lima, and Cadorba, Argentina. And these institutions supplanted the learning institutions that existed amongst the Aztecs, Mayas, and Incas. So, like, this history of colonization is entrenched with the canon, essentially. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And that you know affects everything. I actually the other essay I have on sort of colonization with canon is actually about science.
0: Oh, please go! But I thought sure. it was
1: like really interesting. It's called um, "Knowledge and Knowing: Indigenous and Alternative Knowledges in the Western Canon." And it is, um, like, the writers are from Australia. Um, So, like, we are dipping outside of North America. Um, It's by Andrew Hickey uh, and John Austin, both from the University of Southern Queensland in Queensland, Australia. So they write... the problem of viewing the world via the single universalized lens of Western science is that it reduces lifeways and cultural practices inherent in other locations of the globe to inherently westernized frames of understanding and judgment. Hence, such problems of perceived primitism, social ineptness, quote unquote novel savagery, and intellectual deficit emerge as rationally arrived at conclusions in explaining other people and practices in this way, other, of course, mm-hmm. being capital O other. Yeah. So from a section entitled, what is science? What is knowing problems attached to the purported uh, primacy of Western science and the claims it makes for universality is the focus of this paper. Universalism removes the emergence of context of space and place and the situatedness of being To the margins, as if these aspects of experience shouldn't matter in producing knowledge that explains the world. It is argued that lessons of being and of being situated, learning from the localized practices individuals all over the world engage in when coming to terms with their worlds, must be embraced if any knowledge system is to hope, relevance, and meaning. To know is to know contextually, according to cultural, social, symbolic, and material encounters." This is one such lesson that the hegemonic knowledge system such as Western science, must come to terms with. So this paper is fairly recent; it's from 2011, and they're talking about the ways that, like, Western society, um, this idea that our systems of knowledge are universal. And my, like, I'm attaching this to the idea of the emergence of um, these institutions of knowledge during the time of the renaissance the time of colonialization and like where we kind of developed this idea that like uh, you know that the um the meanings that were being made in those institutions were like objective and universal
0: yeah so um that sort of ties into this i so i have this paper that's a critique of an art history textbook this art history textbook was attempting to um again, try to find, uh, like, a universal, more, a more global approach to art. Mm-hmm. Um, and the textbook is titled Art Since 1900s. This paper is called The On the Spatial Turn, or Horizontal Art History. It's by the author Piotr Piotrowski. And in this article, he questions the geography of this textbook. So the textbook in question focuses on what he calls Western art, okay. which he defines as The art produced in the cultural and political centers of the West, Paris, Berlin, Vienna, London, New York, among others. Hmm. So, again, that's what we've been talking about.
1: I think we have talked about before, like, why we're critical of using the word Western. But
0: yes, it's really hard to um, so much of this usage has quotes around Mm -hmm. it because it's so it comes up so commonly
1: It is like a defined, the idea of the Western world is like a defined set of parameters that originates in sort of these conversations about knowledge.
0: Yes, but this word needs to be destroyed, and that's basically what we're saying this whole episode. So Piotrowski says that this book ignores the the perspective of critical geography. The book fails to reveal the historical significance of the space and place where specific art is actually produced. Right, so he's arguing for contextualization. Right. He describes it this as a vertical approach, placing a West-centric into the hierarchy. Hence, the art of the center determines the specific paradigms, while the art of the periphery is supposed to adopt the models established in the center. The center provides the canons, the hierarchy of values, and stylistic norms. It is the role of the periphery to adopt them in the process of reception. It may happen, of course, that the periphery has its own outstanding artists, but their recognition, their consecration in art history, depends on the center. In the exhibitions organized in the West and the books published in Western countries, it is obvious that in the colonized regions, art developed by drawing on the models of the metropolis. To the scholars who research the subject, however, it is equally obvious that the art goes beyond mere adoption and imitation, as well as beyond mere completion of the art defined by the centers of modernism. So he's arguing for context building and reframing to create a more vertical art history, right? So rather than horizontal, in which we are centralized with this Western idea, and then we we force those concepts onto the periphery, even if you're trying to do it positively, right? Even if you're trying to bring people into the canon, like we were just talking about, you're still lo- using the wrong point of view. Right. So, what he's arguing is a critical geography in which everything is like a verticalized, so everything can exist within its own context and its own culture without. Being othered, essentially.
1: Yes. Yeah, so that is um, like what this the paper on indigenous and alternative knowledge systems I was just talking about calls um, situated knowledge.
0: Mm, yes, exactly. And I, I, I mean, I think that's so much of what we are constantly trying to do with this project on drawing a dialogue. Yes. <laughs> is we're tr- we're trying to understand the context in which things are being created, and it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's the that's how people end up being stuck in this hierarchy and being stuck in this canon, because it's a lot of work to go outside of your point of view.
1: Yeah. It's, it is easier to try and find ways to fit yourself into a pre-existing framework than to insist on radically deconstructing the framework. Like it's harder to admit that the framework itself is the issue and not just that the framework is fine, but it has some blank spots.
0: Yeah. And I think, I mean, as academics and scholars and artists, we are all in this together. Yes. <laughs> so trying to share all this information, yeah. 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 Um, I'm ready to start talking about the canon in comic books. Are you ready to start talking about comic books? I'm ready
1: to start talking about comic books, yeah.
0: All right. It seems like both of us have we have a few sources, but we aren't super excited about them. Is that where you're at?
1: Yeah, a lot of um what I found was a lot of, like, educators' points of view talking about the ways that they try to create a canon in their classroom, essentially. Yeah. Which is, like, definitely an interesting point of view, but the, the thing that I don't want to do is to create a drawing-a-dialogue comic canon. <laughs>
0: <laughs> because what is canon? Canon means rules and masters, and that's really not what we're about here. But we're not saying that it's bad to study comic books, though. Oh, no. I mean, we, they should be taught in art history classrooms and all sorts of classrooms. I mean, my gosh. <laughs> what What is my career <laughs> <laughs> beyond arguing to have comics in education? <laughs> yes. Why don't we just start? I have a few little things. So canon, a lot of the times, we, we've we been talking about canon in the sense of art history. So I have a few things about art historians and their relationship with comic books. Mm-hmm. So this is a essay published in the book Graphic Novels and Comics in the Classroom. So it's Essays on the Educational Power of Sequential Art. This book was edited by uh, Saima and wiener um this specific essay that i'm referring to is by abram fox um so i do i do have this like he argues that there is the way that comics have been canonized is the language of comics is canon itself a problematic concept thanks to lichtenstein andy warhol and other pop artists but the medium itself has little presence other than the accentuate the pop art's challenged the normative rift between painting as high art and comics as low art so what he's saying is that comics exist within the art history historical canon because they need to exist in order to understand roy lichtenstein and andy warhol
1: right because there are a lot of even beyond those two there are a lot of fine artists who pull from comics
0: yeah he i think he's probably pulling from them because they're the first
1: oh yeah they're like the uh the household first
0: in the canon. They're the household names. That's a good way to put it. But I do have a couple of articles, um, one by Jasmine Smith from July 5th, 2017, titled Why Art Historians Still Ignore Comics. And she's actually talking about another journal article by Catherine Roder, which was published in 2008. So this is um, uh, Jasmine Smith is taking from Roder. Mm-hmm. But she has like a few sort of just bullet points on why comics are, aren't part of art history Yeah, in a significant sense. And one of them is the fact that comics don't have autonomy. This idea seems to be that there is like an auteur issue, right? So here's a quote. Another set of obstacles to comics scholarship and criticism are the ambiguities in the of the industry. High-volume publishers like Marvel list separate creditors for inker, artist, author, editor, and colorist. This practice confuses authorship and makes biographical examinations of the works difficult. And this this little article sort of ignores what E was just talking about, right? Because mm-hmm. in that the, art, the history of art history is to support the idea of an individual genius. Yes. And that uh, comics can't fall into that. And what I, is interesting is actually this is also sort of an auteur issue that we've, that is being talked about a lot right now with, in terms of the film industry. Yeah. Right? So usually films are attributed to a director, like a genius director. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is actually being critiqued now because of sort of the violence of having like a single person who's considered a genius when on you're on a film set and it's just like there's... It's collaborative with hundreds, possibly thousands of different people, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I also find that point about comics ultimately being collaborative a very interesting one because it also, I think, kind of highlights the sort of focus that comic studies have on um, mainstream comics, which tend to be more like broken up by um, specialized job versus the more, like, small press indie scene where it tends to be, like, a single artist writer on every book. Or, like, there's a lot more, like, individual quote-unquote artists making comics in, like, the smaller press side of things that doesn't get looked at as much as comics and comic study.
0: Yeah, I mean, absolutely it doesn't get looked at as much. So I wouldn't say that that's, like, the idea is at play here. Oh, yeah, yeah. But it is an issue with people like Stan Lee, who takes credit from all sorts of authors and takes it for himself Mm -hmm. and treats himself as a genius. I mean, that is a, a problem within the comics scholarship community there is still the problem of the genius for sure
1: there are definitely um and i think this is true of titles that have sort of broken the barrier and have like made it into like serious literary consideration of scholarship is that those tend to get sort of that like individual genius label applied to them
0: yeah so Catherine Roder, um in this journal article looking high and low at comic art it was published in American Art, mm-hmm. the Journal of American Art, spring 2008. She's talking about a museum exhibition called the Masters of American Comics, yes, which is a traveling exhibition from the fall of 2005, and it closed in January 2007. So the exhibition included Will Eisner, Jack Kirby, Art Crumb, and Art Spiegelman, and a clear attempt of creating an art history canon for the American comics. So Roder says, a strange... Ambition, indeed, given the anti-canonical stance that comics culture has long taken. Such an effort to prove the masterfulness and genius of a selection of influential comic makers revealed the insecurity rampant in the field of comic history regarding the medium's place at the table of high art and an unwillingness to let it speak for itself. Mm -hmm. So what she's talking about is something that we've talked about before and that comics sort of embraces the fact that it's not high art. We embrace it, you and I. E. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, so she's talking about in this she's critiquing this museum exhibition. But what so what Roder is talking to about is the canon formation as a way to gain respect. Mhm. So this is interesting because it feels like it's going sort of falling a little bit backwards, right? So comics is already a more equal democratic medium. Yes. I mean, I think it's obviously it's arguable to say that not all voices are represented equally, and
1: mm-hmm. it's something
0: that we're constantly having to change and work on. Yes, in publication, um, in awards, all sorts of stuff, in conventions. But this feels like it's going backwards because it's attempting to create more canon.
1: Yeah, and there's there have been a lot of exhibitions of comics. I mean, like not compared to the total number of exhibitions in general in America, but. Um, there have been, like, multiple attempts at creating um, sort of, like, definitive catalogs.
0: And it's interesting, that relationship with the museum. Yeah, because, and, I, and,
1: and this is what I talked about, right, that museums are, like, the makers of meaning. There is, they are sort of considered the, like, definitive, they're the institution that continues to define canon today,
0: mm-hmm. and I do
1: think there is sort of that, like, impulse to legitimize the medium by building that relationship with museums
0: you have an article with comics and the relationship with museums,
1: right? Yeah. So, um, so this is an interesting source, um, that I kind of went back and forth on, um, because it's the version I have access to is a draft, um, that, <laughs> that the writer uploaded herself onto, like, publicly. So, like, it is publicly accessible. Cool. <laughs> but it's from the, uh, secret origin of comic studies from Routledge. And, That was published in 2016 about, and this is Forming a Visual Canon, Comics in Museums by Kim Munson. Um, So again, this is just a draft version of it, but like, it's basically what uh, Munson is doing is going sort of through the history of the relationship between comics and museums. Cool. So like, sort of like, she sort of talks about like, in early 1940s, there was a major exhibition on the history of comics sponsored by the American Institute of Graphic Arts. It opened in the National Arts Club in New York and then toured the U.S. um, And that exhibition included. um, So according to Gaines, who was a publisher who discussed it in detail in articles, I I don't think there's like a catalog that exists from it, basically. Um, So according to Gaines, the work was organized in several sections. Ancient art, beginning with the tracing of a cave drawing from prehistoric Spain. Caricatures and satirical cartoons from the 18th and 19th century, such as William Hogarth, George uh, Cruikshank, and uh, Rodolphe Topfer. Cartoonists working between 1894 and 1920, such as R.F. Colt, Windsor McKay, and George Harriman. And over 20 cartoonists working in the 1940s, such as Ernie Bushmiller, Al Cap, Chester Gold, and Frank King. Gaines gives special mention to Milton Caniff, who was voted the favorite by visitors to the originating exhibition at the National Arts Club. So, like, that's, like, an example of, like, an early comic show. Uh, And she, like, goes on to talk about, from their infancy in the mid-1890s, some critics feared that reading comics contributed to illiteracy by pandering to children and working-class immigrants. Um, Building on this demeaning concept, the idea of comics as low art, in contrast to high fine art, became the dominant opinion in upper circles of the art criticism and museum establishment, um, especially after influential critic Clement Greenberg proclaimed it kitsch in
0: hmm.
1: avant-garde and kitsch
0: what was that article it was 1960
1: something right 1939 so very early so this is sort of just again she runs through like multiple uh up to like current um ex- attempts at exhibitions that have been made or like traveling exhibitions and catalogs and it's interesting to go through and sort of see what cartoonists get picked for each one Mm. There has been, for instance um, And I have mentioned the show before But there has been um, A comic show at the Louvre The Bandy Destiny Show, which ran at the Louvre um, From April through June 1967
0: There's been a bunch
1: Yeah, there's been a bunch I I was just gonna say It is like an interesting The conversation around comics in museums Has more to do with like The way they're displayed A lot of Uh, writing about it talks about issues with like reproduction or displaying originals or like taking pages out of context. Um,
0: Yeah. Well, I think it is interesting because that's what they're talking about in these articles about why comics have been so difficult to, to put into sort of, just sort of hammer into the way art history is taught and observed. Yeah. And canons are built is because they are inherently, you can't just put a single page on the wall and expect the audience to understand the comic as it's supposed to be understood. Yeah, and it's the same with the Abram Fox essay, in which if you're trying to teach comics in an art history class, you can't just project a slide of it of a comic. You have to get your students to read it. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a they have to be taught in a very different way.
1: And actually, um because I also read that Abram Fox article, the thing that I, the thing that I pulled from it that I thought was interesting in talking about ways that it's difficult to sort of include comics in this canon is that, um, Quote, a major obstacle is that the development of comics cannot be understood in the same way as other forms of art. David Carrier has emphatically made the point that although the content of comics changes, their format and the techniques used to create them have largely remained the same since the 1980s and have been available for centuries prior. Because art history is usually divided up into periods of um, technological development. Yeah. Materials that are available change and techniques become popular and those change. Obviously, comics are all very different, but there's not, like, a clean divide where it's, like, this is the period where everyone did inks, and then this is the period where everyone painted. Mm -hmm. There's just not that, Mm -hmm. like, it doesn't develop that way.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's an issue for art history, but that's not an issue for, you know, literature.
1: Right. Which is (laughs) why I think, you know.
0: It's all a grain of salt, right? Yeah. So, like, in this section, we've basically been talking about how art history has not created a canon of comics Mm -hmm. And that scholarship around comics is still growing. We've talked about that before. Yeah. But I don't think that is to say that there isn't a concept of canon. So I wanted to throw out the idea of an informal canon. Okay. A canon that's created just in the minds of cartoonists, in the minds of readers, in the minds of uh, critics. Because I do believe that there is a canon. Okay. I mean, it's negative. I don't feel good about it. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. But I do think that our field... Has created an informal canon based on who gets published, Mm -hmm. who gets written about, Mm -hmm. who gets attention.
1: Who makes it on like lists of like, if you're just getting into comics, these are the ones you have to read.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I do think that exists, it just hasn't been in like in a museum way that exists for other types of art. Like you
1: said, there's definitely an informal comics canon, and I think it has been sort of reinforced through these museum exhibitions also, uh-huh. and through in comic scholarship, certain works get more attention than others. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think what I'm saying is that I believe we need to be observant and still understand the criticism that comes with canonical thinking.
1: Yeah, so to piggybacking off what Kathy said, um, I think for me, it's more about like becoming aware of that. And as usual, my takeaway is instead of having the conversation about how to define a comics canon, have the conversation about how to unlearn that way of thinking. move away from it.
0: Totally. So now it's time for Letters to the Editor, which is our section to sort of talk about previous um, episodes and sort of building off of um, different conversations that we've already had. Um, Did you have anything for Letters to the Editor? Yes.
1: I actually wanted to mention I had the opportunity to visit uh, the zine library at the Sarah Doyle Women's Center um, at Brown. Well,
0: Brown University here in Providence, Rhode Island. Yes. Um, so I had the opportunity to
1: sit down with the Assistant Director of the of the uh, Sarah Doyle Women's Center, and she let me kind of play around in the Zine library, cool. um, which the Zine Library was. um, I think it's cool. it was it's fairly recent. It was started by um um, I apologize if I mispronounce this name, but uh, Milana, uh Krongelb, who is a fourth year student at Brown, um cool she, and it's yes. And she cool. worked she worked with um the Bernard Zine collection to sort of like build it and it it's all like DIY like the catalog is DIY and um, there's a lot of like really good stuff there so I was super excited to have the chance to visit it
0: <laughs> cool that's great any highlights from the collection
1: I didn't want to like stay too long because <laughs> I had other stuff to do but um there I, I love the there's a very good section on like activism and like community uh resources that I was cool. super excited about
0: That's awesome. I love that. So what I wanted to mention in Letters to the Editor is the Speak graphic novel that just came out. To sort of jump off of last episode and our censorship episode, Speak by uh, Laurie Halls Anderson is one of the number one... It was published in 1999, and it's one of the number one ALA banned books in schools. And so it's sort of... The education of Speak sort of helped build... Educators to start talking about uh, sexual assault in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it has a history of teacher advocates, which is like really positive and really cool. Um, So I just wanted to shout out that the graphic novel version just came out. It was uh, illustrated and adapted by Emily Carroll, cartoonist. Uh, She's great. Um, She's my friend. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I need to disclaim that. But it's super beautiful. I just started reading it. It's really big. Um, I really recommend it. And I also recommend it to teachers and educators. It's such a great way to um, read, speak, and see the story. I think it's really cool.
1: Yeah, that's super exciting. Looking forward to reading it.
0: Um, I'll lend it to you when I'm done. Yes, please. <laughs> so this was Drawing a Dialogue. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I want to thank Downtown Boys for their song, Wave of History. It's off their album, Full Communism. It's our intro and outro. You can get it off their band camp. I want to mention our website, which is drawingadialogue.com. You can view all the citations for all the sources that we talk about and use here on these episodes. Um, what else do we want to talk about?
1: you can follow us on Twitter at draw a dialogue and you can email us. Uh we'd love to get like questions or just like bits and bats, whatever you want to send us.
0: Or even letters to the editor for our segment.
1: Or yeah, <laughs> actual letters to the editor. Always appreciated.
0: What was our email?
1: It's drawing a dialogue at gmail.
0: Yeah, and that goes to both of us.
1: Yes. And you can find me on Twitter at ehetja which is e h e t j a
0: and you can find me at kathy g john um come hang out yeah so what are you reading e
1: so um i have been re-watching Frasier in honor of uh john maloney um which was a show that my dad and i used to watch together when i was a kid um oh that's sweet and was one of the, like, my dad had a lot of gay friends who talked to him about how gay Frasier was. So he talked to me a lot about how <laughs> gay Fraser was. So in a weird way, it was like very early gay culture
0: that I had access to. Yeah, David Hyde Pierce is gay. He's a gay man.
1: A lot of the actors on that show are gay. Not not, f- not Kelsey Grammer, no. What about you, Kathy? What are you reading?
0: Um, So I wanted to bring a couple things. Um, So I've been reading High Rise by J.G. Ballard. It's sort of a horror, sci-fi novel been really fun. And then last night I saw the Trinity Rep production of Othello. Ooh, Yeah, it was really, it was really tough. It was really hard. Um, So it's like, it's a beautiful production. Um, If you're unfamiliar with Shakespeare's Othello, it's about a black man who gets tricked into murdering his white wife by villain Iago. Mm. And Iago is well known as the only Shakespeare villain who doesn't have a reason for why he does his villainy. He doesn't give us a reason. So this production, um, he was like a really um, sort of a white supremacist. Um, It Mm. was based in, it was modernized to be sort of on a military base so everyone was in like camo. It was really tough. They um, they used, uh, they had fake guns on stage. Um, Some people actually walked out. Really? Yeah, because I mean, not only the subject matter of racial violence, but also the current subject matter yeah. of gun violence.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. So yeah, I, I watched at least five people walk out. Um. Huh. And I, I cried. It was really hard. Um. But it was a beautiful production. Yeah. Um. So good job, Trinity Rep. Yeah. yeah that sounds beautiful.
1: Cool. Thank you.
0: So thank you for listening. This was Drawing a Dialogue. Farewell to our intrepid volunteers.